Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Friday, and amazingly, we actually have some good news. I mean, there's a lot of bad news out there, but can we just focus for a moment on the good news? With the jobs numbers out this morning, the U.S. economy added 531,000 jobs in October. Unemployment rate dropped uh, from 4.8% to 4.6%. And, and actually, just as interesting, uh, the some of these new numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed that the late summer slump wasn't as bad as we had thought. They actually revised their August and September payroll numbers up rather significantly. So basically here we're at, I mean, after after losing about 20 million jobs in March and April of 2020, the economy has gained all but 4 million of them by October. I mean, obviously there's a ways to go, but this is, this is good news. That's, that's number one. Number two, piece of pretty good news is Pfizer says its experimental COVID-19 pill cut hospital hospitalization and deaths by 90%. And they're going to be seeking authorization from the FDA and international regulators. They, it was so good. They actually stopped their trials and said, we got to go, you know, we have to move ahead with this because fewer than 1% of the patients taking the drug needed to be hospitalized and no one died. And in the control group, 7% were hospitalized and there were seven deaths. So this is, this is an amazing development uh, and it may mean the, the end of this particular pandemic. And of course, other good news, after 39 years, ABBA has a new album out. And I tried to get Bill Crystal interested in talking about that, but this is no go. Just not an ABBA fan, are you, Bill? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sort of ABBA ignorant, but I'm not ABBA hostile. So you yeah. should say a few words about it, Charlie. It meant a lot to you. It's what <laughs> no, no, I hopped on a few minutes ago before the sh- before we started the the tape going, uh, so to speak. Uh, that was that was at the top of your mind. So I think our listeners yeah. would like to hear you on ABBA. I guess you know, p- part of it Does is anyone I, under fifty know anything about ABBA? No, see, I, I don't. They've been around a long time. I mean, they. What's interesting about this is I don't know whether the album's any good. Uh, the reviews are kind of mixed, but the fact is it's their first album in 40 years. So they haven't done anything in 39 mm-hmm. years. And so these, uh, shall we say, senior citizens in Sweden get together and go, hey, this would be fun if we just got back in the studio together and see if we can still pull it off. And I just, kind of the story of the album is as interesting to me as 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 whether it's any good. And we'll find out whether it's any good. I, 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 don't, I don't know. See, the, these things... Uh, you know, reading reviews of music albums always strikes me as weird because you either like something you're done. It, it's completely idiosyncratic. You know what I mean? Right, I just, right. it, I, I don't know. So pop music. All right. So we have a lot going on. Is today infrastructure day or not? Um, I don't know. Uh, it seems likely as we are speaking in the morning that the house will pass the bipartisan bill. Um, who knows what they're going to do with the larger reconciliation bill in a lot of ways, that's kind of a little bit of kabuki theater because that bill, if, if they pass it, um, is dead on arrival in the Senate. I mean, Joe Manchin's not paying any attention there. Whatever attempts they were making to negotiate between the House and the Senate and you know, come up with something they wouldn't agree on, they basically said, screw that, we're just going to pass our own thing. So who knows, but happy Infrastructure Day anyway, Bill. Yeah, and to you, I guess. <laughs> but not that I wish it would just frankly go away, but I guess we're going to have months more of discussion and debate over infrastructure human infrastructure proposals that are hard to figure out what they really are have never been explained or defended very well honestly and i'm dubious about i mean they have, some of them sound like pretty good ideas to me some of them sound like pretty pointless ideas to me and wasteful and maybe some counterproductive and 
I guess, but it seems like in this country, we are beyond having a serious public policy debate about any of these things. They just get thrown together and then people react and then they get bar- they bargain and then some new package gets thrown together, right? Okay. So, now, I, I say this as a fiscal conservative, but th- there are still, there are some things in that Build Back Better bill that, that are pretty interesting. And by the way, I, I want to reiterate that I think that Build Back Better is one of the worst slogans ever. <laughs> Th- this should be the Working Families Act of, of 2021, because you right. look at things like the child credit, you look at uh, the Family Medical Leave Act, things like that. They could really have, um, you know, pushed this as pro-family, pro-child, pro-worker, sort of thing, like it's time to invest in American workers, the working class, as opposed to giving, you know, tax breaks to billionaires. That strikes me as a message that 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 might have helped them a little bit. Instead, they decided they were going to talk amongst themselves. And the only thing that Americans know about that bill is it's a shitload of money. Right. I'd say more broadly, perhaps, I don't know if I think you'd agree with this, but you should demure if you wish. I mean, I'd say uh, this fits into the broader problem of their rhetoric. So you mentioned the great progress on the vaccine, maybe now even a pill uh, that deals with it, but certainly the five through 11 year olds are beginning to get vaccinated, yeah. which will be a big relief to a lot of parents. And obviously coming out of the recession, uh, the pandemic induced recession pretty strongly. So on the whole, good news on the pandemic, good news on the economy. So the way it seems to me to sell a big piece of legislation then like this is to say, and they could have said this months ago, even when some of the news was less uh, uh, ambiguously good, unambiguously good, but it was still clear we were going in the right direction. They could have said, look, this is a great country. It's a strong country. Look at our economy. What a tribute to American business and American workers and American families. The pandemic, we're worried that some, we wish more people had gotten vaccinated sooner, but we're doing the right thing on that too. We're going to come through that. And now this is kind of the supplement to that. This is what makes America even better because there are some things we have neglected to do over the years that we can do a better job on. And it's family and medical leave or it's, you know, infrastructure or whatever, physical infrastructure or it's uh, some aspects of Medicare and so forth. But that hasn't been the rhetoric. They let the left in a way dominate the rhetoric. So it's, oh my God, what a country we live in. We haven't done anything for decades to help anyone. And we've got to do this whole thing now because it's like the Great Depression. You know, the New Deal comparison is revealing because the New Deal was made possible by and necessary by the Great Depression. And what this data shows is that we're not in a Great Depression. And even the pandemic, we're coming out of uh, in better shape, I mean, terrible number of deaths, but otherwise in better shape than one might have expected. But again, I think it's part of a broader problem of, of the, the it's, people say messaging and they're right and they say they haven't explained what's in the bill and they're right and they say that it looks like a whole bunch of negotiations no one understands and they're right. But the broader messaging is not, this is a great country and we can make it better with these uh, improvements. Um, building on what's been done over the last decades and, and so forth, it's kind of, oh my God, we're in horrible shape. Then they complain that, well, gee, we're not getting any credit for the good news. Well, you, you can't have it both ways, right? Yeah, I, I know there's some people who are tired of hearing about the messaging question, but the Stuart Stevens had a really interesting tweet this morning. He said, look, right now, the Dow is over 36,000. Right. Unemployment has dropped from 6.3% in January to 48 over 5 million jobs added, a record, 220 million vaccines in the last 10 months, and only 30% of the country think the U.S. is on the right track. Uh, Democrats have a huge messaging problem. Well, but they don't that like that message. Be, That's yeah. not a message they're comfortable delivering, which is, you know what? This is a very resilient country. Even absent government action, a lot of good stuff happens. Uh, With sensible government action, more good stuff could happen, right? That's the sensible, if I would say, 
moderate democratic message and, and a true message, incidentally, I think. It has the big, what's the joke? It has the uh, huge additional advantage of yeah, being, being true. true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but instead, they've kind of embraced a weird, they sometimes do the kind of things are better than you realize, but then they kind of lapse back into the, but we if we don't do this, this country is not a country worth living in kind of rhetoric, which then fits in on some of the cultural issues That's too. That's interesting. With the left's rhetoric. And suddenly, I, I do think voters just think, I don't know. I mean, and I, I heard this with someone up here in Northern Virginia, you know, what is all this child credit? I said, well, that's really one of the good things, I think, in the, yeah. in the package for various reasons. I don't know. It seems like it's going to everyone. And I look down my street here in the suburbs and people are doing pretty well. Those people don't need a child tax credit. They're, yeah, and they're, yeah. handling, they're handling the pre-K education of their kids okay. And maybe there are a few tweaks that could be made, but we're, we're going to throw hundreds of billions of dollars at this. Now, if they had said, look, we need to target it, we need to help some struggling, you know, single parent families at the poverty line or someone above it, we need, I think the family and worker and family leave is actually a very easy thing to sell. That was one of the things they cut first though. Um, I don't know. I just feel like they're, they're out of touch with a certain kind of sensible, you know, appreciation of some government so more, more is, from an action that we had under Trump or under Bush for that matter, I suppose. Uh, but, but not this kind of, not buying into a rhetoric that the countries and uh, they, they have made it hard as an incumbent yeah. administration to get them, give themselves credit for what's happened. I think that's a very interesting point that, that they can't handle good news. Right. I mean, this is this is a problem. This is more than a messaging problem. It is like, are are you able to say, hey, America is really doing well. We're doing fantastic. Look at all of this. Now, look, there are significant problems. There's no question about it. I mean, the stock market is not the economy. There right. are people who are still struggling and everything. Uh, but they have been unable really to tout some of their successes. Okay, so this was a disastrous week for the, for the Democrats. Um, I don't think there's any way to put lipstick on the pig. You appeared on the 11th hour with Brian Williams the other night, and uh, I just want to play a little, you know, about a 30 second clip where you're talking about, um, you know, the, the message of what happened in Virginia and New Jersey. This is you, Bill, from the other night. Uh-oh. It was a repudiation of the party, I think, not of the individuals, which is more worrisome, as Robert sort of suggested. I mean, it was a wave, you know, and in a wave, you could have better candidate. Democrats had a very attractive lieutenant governor candidate here in, in Virginia, Ayala, against a, I think, pretty flaky Republican, honestly. She lost, too. So I, I think that's not good news, though, because you can't blame it on one bad candidate or one slip up in a debate. You've got to say that the image of the Democrats was not great among the people who voted. That's uh, that's the bad news, isn't it? That it's you can't just point to one bad candidate, one bad debate, one gaffe. This is uh, this was a repudiation of what Americans think of the Democrats, their image. So, Bill, what what is that problem? What what do people when they look at the Democratic Party? What do these voters see? What do they think? So I could say a couple of things just on the on the Republican side. What strikes me, and I think this is just unfortunate, and maybe this is a messaging problem in terms of Democrats too, is they don't disqualify Republicans as much, frankly, as they should for going along with Trump, for going along with January 6th, for going along uh, with a big lie. Uh, now, maybe I'm overweighting that and normal voters, so to speak, think that's sort of a sideshow, a sidebar. Uh, and it's a, it wasn't a federal election, it was a state election. I can understand why they would vote for Youngkin or, or, or the Republican in New Jersey. But uh, So that's one thing. The Republicans are not as self-disqualifying as a lot of people thought they would be, or maybe, frankly, they should be. But that's that's neither here nor there. That's where the voters are. On the Democratic side, 
Um, look, I do think when you have a president of, of your party, that defines the party, right? I mean, Bush went downhill and most Republicans were not responsible for the way Bush handled Katrina in 2005, you know, right. they weren't really responsible for the details and they voted for it, but for, of the, of the way the Iraq war was managed, they had no say in what Rumsfeld's strategy was. But at the end of the day, if people didn't like Katrina and they thought Iraq was going badly, the whole party paid a huge price in 2006. And John McCain paid a huge price in 2008, even though he'd been a huge critic of Rumsfeld and mm-hmm. of Bush in many ways. So the party gets defined by the president. Uh, Biden's approval rating had gone down from a, you know low 50s to the low 40s. And that drop, 10-point drop, is pretty much exactly the drop in the Democratic vote from 2020 to 2021 in Virginia and New Jersey. So I do think it's it's the Democratic Party, but it is the Biden administration to a large degree some of it unfair, some of it a kind of, uh, you know, details of when the Hill happened to pass certain things didn't. And maybe some of that gets fixed on its own in a sense when the stuff gets passed and the economy comes back more and we get out of COVID more. But I think some of it are more fundamental problems with the way the party looks and with the governance of the Biden administration. Some of it might be one off Afghanistan, you know, which did a lot of damage, it turned out, even though people didn't Yep. maybe know that much about the details of that issue or maybe agreed with Biden on that issue, but they, the way it was handled and the reaction to the way it was handled or mishandled, I think spooked people a little bit about, well, these guys, like, are they going to adjust if they make a mistake? And, and, and then uh, Sarah Longwell found in all these focus groups, well, where is Biden? What's his message? Where's the leadership? And, and so I, I think there's a broader challenge to the Biden administration now to, to internalize some of the lessons of what happened and to change their ways a little bit. And for me, this is the big question. I'm very curious what you think about this. I mean, you, you have an election defeat, whether it's an off-year defeat, like a, even, you know, a congressional defeat, you know, like, like mm-hmm. 1994, 2010, or even this kind of uh, warning sign, firebell in the night kind of situation with a couple of governor's races and some other races across the country. One thing you can do is is get some stuff done, and they're going to do that, I suppose, on the Hill. Another is to improve your messaging of your current policies. But there has to be some adjustment, I think. And this I don't see much in the Biden uh, world. I mean, there has to be also voters want to know that you listened to them and that you adjusted some things. That was Clinton was terrifically good at that in 1995. He was was really had been had a humiliating defeat and had really been taken to the woodshed by the voters. But, you know, you got to tell the voters, I hear you. Now, some of that can be sort of, you know, superficial, frankly. Mm -hmm. Some of it has to be real, I think. But there has to be, if voters have the sense that Biden's reaction to this and the Democrats' reaction to this was to do more of what they've been doing, even if they do it a little better, honestly, and even if you see a little more results from it, I just don't think that's enough. There has to be a bit of a pivot, a bit of an adjustment, as well as improving what you were doing before. Yeah, I, I just want to underline one of the points you're making there, though, about re- Republicans not paying a price for their ties to to Donald Trump. And, and I think this is was one of the uh, it was kind of a sobering thing because, of course, uh, yeah. uh, M- McAuliffe and others tried to make this all about Donald Trump. Biden tried to make it all about Donald Trump. They tried to tie Youngkin as much, as closely as possible to, to him. And I think one of the lessons is that uh, if if Trump is just a spectral presence in the distance, um, he's not as potent, uh, not as potent turning out uh, Democrats, even though you know Democrats turned out in big numbers. McAuliffe got more votes than Northam got. But he, he got a much lower percentage of Biden voters than Youngkin got of Trump voters. So there's an enthusiasm gap there. But you're right. They're not they're not paying a price for it. 
And uh, this is something that I think the Democrats have to think. I think in, in part maybe because Democrats have spent so much time firing at one another rather than uh, and, and allowing the Republicans to sit on the sidelines. But this is a party that should be paying a big price for January 6th. It should be paying a big price for for uh, empowering people like Lauren Boebert and, uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and, and Matt Gates and all of that. Uh, so and, and there's still time to do that. But I think that that is a warning sign. Um, Speaking of yeah, just on that, out, I'd say, I yeah, mean, sure, presumably yeah. in a federal election, in a national election, yeah. in 2022, when Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert's colleagues are on the ballot and when right. 150 or something, 40 House Republicans who voted to overturn the January 6th results are on the ballot, it's a little easier to bring that home. But yes. I agree, it has to be brought home. And the Democrats, if you listen to the Democrats, the way most voters do, sort of episodically and a little bit just looking at headlines, and I do that too, frankly, it's infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. What happened to, I mean, the election reform stuff, fixing the electoral, preventing January 6th from happening again. Is that at the center of the Democrats' agenda? There's no electoral count act, you know, which would be the legislation yeah. that would fix some of what went wrong. There's no, they haven't made progress on in dealing with the filibuster to allow some election reform stuff. The January 6th commission, I, I hope is doing a good job behind the scenes, but there's been almost nothing public yet. And so it's sort of, there's just been no, uh, Biden's busy on infrastructure, not on uh, saving democracy. Um, and I, well, I want to get to, I want to get to critical race theory and education right. and all of that in a moment and how that played out. But one of the more remarkable things this morning, and I know I'm sure you've seen it by now, is the editorial from the New York Times, the New York Times editorial board, which I would say would be, it's safe to say, is uh, quite liberal. Yeah. And they have a piece that I have to say sounds like it was ripped from the pages of The Bulwark. And what they write, just so you know that it's not just guys like us, it's not just The Bulwark. Uh, they're, uh, the Times editorial board writes, Democrats deny political reality at their own peril. Familiar takeaways like wake up calling warning shot don't do justice here because the danger of ignoring these trends is too great. What would do justice and what is badly needed is an honest conversation in the Democratic Party about how to return to the moderate policies and values that fueled the blue wave victories in 2018 and won Joe Biden the presidency in 2020. Hmm. Democrats looking left on so many priorities and so much message, messaging, have lost sight of what can unite the largest numbers of Americans. A national democratic party that talks up progressive policies at the expense of bipartisan ideas and that dwells on Donald Trump at the expense of forward-looking ideas is at risk of becoming a marginal democratic party appealing only to the left. And then in case there's any doubt about this, they're they're going, I, I, you know, Democrats are now saying that they just need to keep doing more of what they're doing. And this is the New York Times editorial board saying Tuesday's results are a sign that significant parts of the electorate are fearing leery of a sharp leftward push in the party. That's their words, not ours, including on priorities like Build Back Better, which have some strong provisions and some discretionary ones driving up the price tag. The concerns of more centrist Americans about a rush to spend taxpayer money, a rush to grow the government, should not be dismissed. Whoa. So, well, I mean, I don't well, read the New York well, Times well, editorial page yeah. much, so I, I'm not too sure how much of a pivot this is even from yeah. like a week ago. But my vague impression is the New York Times editorial page for two years has been uh, mostly 
rooting on the left wing of the Democratic mm-hmm. Party, complaining that Biden wasn't being ambitious enough. I was just thinking about this as you spoke. Who did they endorse for president, actually, in the Democratic primaries? If I'm not mistaken, they co-endorsed at a totally wacky kind of thing, right? Uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar, isn't that right? I think that's right. Yeah. And Klobuchar, I think they threw in to kind of cover themselves and they didn't, and, and, you know, she was more moderate, though she didn't really fight the left much. She just was more moderate. But Elizabeth Warren, so you endorse Elizabeth Warren for president, and that was where their heart was. And and as I say, during most of the primary campaign, they were on the left and supporting the left in the Democratic Party. And I think that's been true through 2020 in terms of, and 2021, in terms of even this legislation. I don't think they were on the, oh, 3.5 trillion, that's a big mistake. They were not, they did not sound like the bulwark two, two months ago, right? No, not, I don't think so. They did not say what Charlie Sykes and uh, and Amanda Carpenter and Mona Charon said about, boy, you're really running a risk of looking like just big government liberals here. They didn't say about critical race theory, oof, this is you just be careful how you say this and explain this and make sure you also explain your ultimately for a colorblind society. They were not in that business. And it's a very abrupt pivot. I think it could be helpful and useful. And I guess I give them credit for say sounding like us now, but it's a, it's awfully sudden. But maybe the, for well, them, the election really was, I guess, a wake up call. And there were a lot a shock, of shock. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Focus is the mind. OK, so we have to do this. We have to talk about a race and critical race theory and and. You know, I I think the difficulty of talking about this is that two things can be true at the same time, that number one, there was a cynical and demagogic attempt to exploit the term critical race theory and implying that it was being taught and, and it's being manipulated. That's that's true. But also it's true at the same time that there were legitimate concern, not just about how race was being taught in the schools, but also policies involving uh, you know, equality of outcomes, uh, the assault on academic standards or what was perceived to be an assault on academic standards, controversies over the elimination of gifted and talented programs. And these were genuine concerns by parents who had been battered and were frustrated after a year of the COVID shutdown. And I think it would be a huge mistake for people on the left to continue to just bash white women and say this is all about white supremacy and about white racism, because I think the situation is more complex um, there. I mean, again, so I'm not saying that the attacks on critical race theory were always in good faith, but I think that when Democrats tried to pretend that the the backlash was, was simply fanciful, that there was nothing there, I think they were missing some genuine concerns of suburban parents, many of whom had voted for Joe Biden just a year ago. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think, as you say, both things could be true at once. I do think oh, I miss this too. The, the degree to which people had lost yep. faith in the public school system and and it, because of the handling of COVID, that was only true here in Northern Virginia, and just the mechanics of how they dealt with it and they stayed closed longer than they had to and the system didn't work very well in remote education. And then to have, this is where McAuliffe really, the slip up yep. was less about uh, the details of what he was saying, of which was in fact a question about about critical race theory and how you McAuliffe was trying to say, I think you can't have parents saying this book, you know, telling yeah. you exactly what the curriculum should be in seventh grade history or eleventh grade English, but individual parents, the loudest voice, the heckler's veto over that. But what he missed is the degree to which parents felt we've been kind of carrying a pretty big burden here for the last year and a half. And the teachers unions have been deferred to an awful lot in terms yeah. of the, the protection of their members, which is reasonable to a degree, but they went overboard. And it's still being deferred to an awful lot. And the bureaucracy is being awfully slow and 
and unresponsive, and they weren't in the mood for, uh, you know, this kind of blanket defense of the public school system, which is what McAuliffe ended up doing pretty much or seeming to do. So I think there's something going on there that's COVID-related. Now, I do think it's an early, that's an opportunity for educational reformers, and there used to be a lot in the Democratic Party, even President Obama and his Secretary of Education talked about charter schools and stuff. The degree to which, if that's not picked up a little bit by the Democrats, that will become a huge Republican issue. And again, if someone like Youngkin can shape it into more of a charter school and education reform issue and a little less of the race baiting, um, you know, and some reform of curriculum, but but, but mostly just that could be pretty effective for the Republicans. So I think they are missing yeah. the boat on that. On the more race specific thing, I, yeah, I'm very much where you are. There's been terrible demagoguery. There's been some stupid stuff on the other hand in the schools. And for me, the key was, again, for Democrats, let's just take the Democratic side of it. You can go on quite a lot. You can be quite sympathetic to pretty radical, I'd even say, critiques of American history, and we've got to come to grips with it, and of course we should take down the Confederate monuments, and we need mm -hmm. to be honest about what the flaws and the, the problems. But at the end of the day, I do think you have to be in favor, say, but, but the point of all, and we have for now, we can't pretend structural racism has gone away, but the point of it still has to be Martin Luther King's colorblind society okay. I mean, that has to be the uh, end goal you know it can't be that people do people are willing to go through a certain amount of even you know things they don't like very much being being you know having their kids taught things they're a little uncomfortable with themselves being put through you know racial awareness programs that they're by the hr people at their company they're kind of willing to suck it up and go through that they don't like it very much maybe for good and bad reasons but if they think at the end of the day we're going to kind of come out of this tunnel and that the goal is to come out of this tunnel that's one thing. If they think that the people doing this just want us to stay in this tunnel forever, that is not going to be well received. No, and I don't, I mean, I don't think that Terry McCullough for the Democrats came up with a good pushback. And I, I, I really agree with Matt Lewis when he says, you know what, if, if the response to what happened in Virginia is to attack voters and accuse them of being racist and white supremacists, that will not just backfire, but that will backfire because it confirms all of their suspicions <laughs> about, you know, uh, you're, you know, seeing everything through this particular lens. Now, let me read you something. OK, and I want to do this for the benefit of the of the audience as well, because um, and because this this is a take on what we were just discussing, you know, how to talk about race. All right. We will teach all history, the good and the bad. America is the greatest country on the planet. We know it. We have an amazing history, but we also have some dark and abhorrent chapters. We must teach them all. We can't know where we're going unless we know where we come from. But let me be clear. What we don't do, what we don't do is teach our children to view everything through a lens of race, where we divide them into buckets. One group's an oppressor, another group's a victim, and we pit them against one another and we steal their dreams. We will not be a commonwealth of dream stealers. We will be a commonwealth of dream enablers and builders. We know it's not right. We're all created equal, and we're trying so hard to live up to those immortal words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who implored us to be better than we are, to judge one another based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And so let me be clear, on day one, we will not have political agendas. Now, I'm not presenting that as a gotcha, though. But you know what that is? That's Glenn Youngkin. 
Right. No, no, I know. That no, was, he said, I know. He said <laughs> that something about it. And that's why I'm going to forbid critical race theory. Right, in right. That's school. the line so, I left off. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of a bit of a, you know, uh, you might a say twi- a twist at the end. Correct. But no, but, that's, but, but, but know. the reason I'm mentioning this is look, so if the response then is from all of the folks on MSNBC, that this was all just racist and all of this stuff and the people who voted for him are all racist. It's like, Maybe it's more complex than that. Actually, it is more complex than that. Yes. Are there bigots out there? Are there white race? Yes, there are. But I think that the what he did was much more nuanced than I think uh, some of the I, I think it was was more nuanced than the McAuliffe people um, either understood or were willing to counter, because a lot of that language is what McAuliffe should have said. He should have said some of those things. And the fact that Yunkin was basically saying, look, um, this is our aspiration. This is, you know, aspiration to a post-racial colorblind society. And then then the Republicans say, see, it's the other side that's dividing us by race. So it's not it's not us. I mean, this is this is part of this this non-Trumpian appeal um, that somehow Democrats are going to are going to have to confront. I mean, one thing they can say legitimately is, but uh, Youngkin says these nice things and he never denounces the people who are, you know, Mm -hmm. storming school board meetings and being genuinely demagogic and bullying and racist at times. And so that would be nice if he did that also. Uh, That would be, now McAuliffe, to be fair, some of those sentences he said too, he's not like McAuliffe is some big, you know, guy who goes around denouncing America, you know? Um, He was governor of the state for four years and, you know, was a pretty decent governor and a Clinton administration guy and all that. But, um, but yes, they have to, uh, it's, and whatever, anyway, yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, look, well, Biden uh, carried the state by 10 votes. Yunkin 10 carried points, it right. by, These by the, 10 points, Yunkin by two and a half. So you can't deny, those are the same people. You know, they didn't, those are now, the same some, people. There's right. some more turnout in the South. So maybe it's 7% of the same, but a lot of them are the same people and they are the swing voters and they need they have concerns. Some of, I could in a theoretical way say some of those concerns are not quite correct or they're illegitimate or they're, they're, they're believing too much stuff they're hearing indirectly from Fox News, even if they don't watch Fox News, fine, but it still has to be addressed. And that's where the pivot has to happen. This is where I'm worried from the initial instincts uh, of the Biden administration and from a lot of people in Congress uh, that there, there's a certain kind of, if only we just keep doing what we're doing, but do it more aggressively. You know, it's, it is like the famous, you know, you, you, the person doesn't hear you and doesn't want it, doesn't uh, agree with you. So you shout louder, right? There's, there's a little bit of shouting louder that's necessary. There's a little bit of sh- speaking more clearly that's necessary. That's the messaging. But there also needs to be a little bit of a different message and an absorption of some of young of the young that part of the Youngkin message, and then right. saying, "Hey, that's very nice." You know what? And the truth is, if Glenn Youngkin were the presidential nominee in twenty four, uh, that might be a different situation and a different kind of debate. But you know what? John, Glenn Youngkin is not going to be the presidential nominee of the party, and he's going to support Donald Trump. So yeah. let's just get back to that in terms of the Republican Party, and let's get back to January sixth, and let's get back to everything else. And on the but you do also on the Democratic side have to adopt, move over, and preempt a little bit of that rhetoric, as you say, that was just, they just left, vacated the field on that. See, I think one of the the most important factors in politics is if people think you're on their side, 
um, they're willing to listen to you. If people think that you have contempt for them and are not on your side, they're going to dismiss what you have to say. So if you start the conversation going, you know, I think you're stupid and your mother's ugly. Would you like to hear my ideas about tax reform? Mm -hmm. No, no. So I, I, I think this is one of the things that because Democrats, I think, are used to talking to well, and I, and I wrote about this the other day, and other people like David Shore have been written about this. Um, you know, others have have pointed out that with the educational polarization, you know, Democrats are increasingly dominated by college-educated elites who are used to talking to one another, and I think have lost the knack of talking to working-class voters who, at some level, want to be treated with respect and want to feel that you share their values. And I think this is what I was, you know, going back thinking, you know, how did this become so so, you know, hair on fire. And I, I, I can't document this, but I, I think the 1619 project was a turning point hmm. where it basically said the founding of the country was not the aspirational moment where we decided that we believe that all men are created equal, but rather it was 1619 that we were a society founded on slavery. And this whole notion that we were thoroughly corrupted by that, that's that moment where I, I think it's it if you if you say that you know you know what I'm getting at here it's like yeah. once you essentially say no we are not the country of 1776 you're asking people to reject their legacy and their values and their shared values in a pretty radical way and I think that that's that I think that lies at the bottom of all of this do you do you actually think America is a good country or not a good country are we thoroughly corrupt or have are we a country with flaws that has been heading in the right direction. And I think that if you believe that we're kind of, you know, all Americans, we're proud to be Americans, we love America, well, now let's talk, you know, with one another about what we need to do to make America better. That conversation is going to be very different than you need to apologize, you need to interrogate yourself, you need to atone for all of the evil things that you and people like you have been doing forever, because that's a very different conversation. Yeah, no, I think I was had a conversation a couple a quote a capital C conversation, which will be released in a month or two, with Diana Shaw, who's a Lincoln scholar about the second inaugural. And if you look at that, there's, that that refers to 1619 literally, in the sense 250 years ago, you know, the, the slavery comes over, and we 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 are paying a horrible price for that. But ultimately, and and so you can be quite candid about the, the horrors of slavery, the price we have paid, the fact that we failed to overcome it, the failures of Reconstruction, the failures even of the subsequent efforts to to, to you know how hard it was to move forward with civil rights, and we fell short in various ways. But it has to still be a narrative that ultimately, as Lincoln said, we are aspiring to the goals of 1776, and we have made progress in that aspiration, and we need to do more. Not we're so fundamentally flawed, we have to change the country, as it were, and, and reject. 1776 isn't the founding moment. I think that's a shrewd point you make about yeah. maybe that one act, that one sort of New York journalistic slash academic project having more impact than uh, than one realizes. Well, also, um, I, I, I do think it's it's important to remember that they specifically and very openly wanted that to be taught in schools. Mm -hmm. Remember, they they disseminated that. So they were the ones who said, this is the version of race in America that we want taught in schools all across America. And that lit a match. You know, so so the when people and I'm one of them who comes back and says critical race theory is not being taught in schools. That is true. However, 
I would say maybe the penumbra, the kinds of attitudes right. that come out of it were in fact either being taught in school or was very clearly intended to be taught in school. So uh, here we're at. So, and, and when yeah, we yeah, say, yeah. and when one says, and I say, you know, look, what's taught in schools is kind of bad sometimes and it's annoying. It's not going to fundamentally destroy America where it's an authoritarian political party led by Donald Trump really has threatens our democracy. Uh, so the, the, the scale of the challenges is different, and, but, but we could be against both. Um, I think that doesn't work when in Virginia, you're, it's a governor's election and Youngkin is being distant and is not like Trump enough that no one thinks Youngkin is going to storm the Capitol here in Richmond. And if he had lost, he would have conceded um, and so forth. So I, I do think maybe at a federal level elections, the balance of changes a little. But again, it has to be the Democrats do need to show, I very much agree with you, they need to show they're in, they're listening to the voters. They don't have to agree with them on everything. They can say, I think you've got, I don't think it's quite as bad as you, well, you can't quite... Not, 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 I was going to say, it's not quite as bad as you say in the schools. That's probably a bad message to say. Say, look, yeah. if there are things that are being taught in the schools that shouldn't be, we should address that. Right. But we also have to realize that there, you know, there are ways to say it that are understanding of voters' concerns and that then pivot to the issues where the voters do agree with the Democrats and also disagree with the Trumpy Republicans and should be more alarmed about Trumpy Republicanism. I think that's all doable. I would say, though, again, I'm I'm a little worried that the there's not much evidence. Now it's very early days, but uh, of the Biden administration or maybe the congressional leadership doing much pivoting. You know, there hasn't been that sort yeah. of moment of oh yes, you know what we we did mess some things up. They need to say that. I think honestly, voters want to hear that. They've given you a rebuke. They want to see that you understand the rebuke. Maybe you don't fully internalize it. Maybe you don't go along with everything that they want you to go along with. There has to be some recognition of that. Well, this goes back to your earlier observation, though. The Democrats have a hard time messaging good news uh, about the economy. I, I think they have a hard time right now messaging the maybe we have gone too far left. I, I was thinking about schools and everything, you know, and how how what they would learn from Virginia. But one of the problems is, you know, Democrats would have to say things like, we obviously respect parental rights. You know, parents are the first educators and we certainly respect them. Uh, we don't, uh, you know, we, we're, we're not going to embrace these kinds of, you know, bizarre uh, trends and everything. But the reality is, is that for the last 40 years, they have had a very, very hard time um, having any distance between themselves and the teachers unions. Now, I think Barack Obama and his education secretary made some progress in that. But that that's going to require a kind of a, a wrench for them. Yeah, I Arnie think, Duncan, who was Barack Arnie Obama's was education good, yeah. secretary, you could not say what Arnie Duncan said routinely as education secretary uh, about uh, reforming the school system, the the bureaucracy is sclerotic. We need to give parents a lot of input and say, uh, as you say parents are the kids' first educators. Um, I'm not sure uh, a Democratic education secretary could say that in 2021. And look, get back to the pre-K thing and all this. One of the easy, and the family credit, that could have been all sold as kind of, we're trying to help parents do a better, make it easier for them to, to educate their kids and to take charge of their kids' uh, destiny and help their kids get off on a good footing. And instead, I think voters look at the pre-K stuff, which Democrats are convinced is like a magic wand that everyone loves. And they, I think a lot of voters look at it and think, I don't know, these public schools aren't doing so great. And now what are they going to do? Like maybe send my kid or give me huge financial incentives to send my kid to a public school at age three instead of at age six. I'm not sure. I don't think that's actually how the program would work. But I don't think it would be that hard for Republicans to make it look like that. Power grab by the teachers unions, not a genuine attempt to help parents. 
Yeah, and I think that would be a that would be a powerful message. So, um, you know, you and I had talked a little bit earlier this morning about whether we should, uh, you know, hold off on on the podcast to see, you know, what the, what the congressional vote is. <laughs> and I I think I ultimately decided we didn't want to be held hostage because that could go all day. So just and this will of course be resolved, I suppose, by the time people listen to this. But but right now. Moderates are apparently uh, saying they're not going to, you know, vote for. I'm not. I, I'm guessing pretty much anything, unless they get a CBO score on uh, the the bills, uh, how much they actually cost. And so they're they're really dug in. They're saying we're not going to vote for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, apparently, it, it looks now like the CBO score won't come in until uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Wow. So, and Nancy Pelosi, and I, I keep coming back to this. Nancy Pelosi can only lose three votes. No, it's a very the, tough the, the Senate. And you were talking about FDR and the New Deal. I mean, not only did that take place during a time of, of a great recession, but when they had massive majorities, this this mismatch between the number of votes they have and the ambition it's always been a problem, and it's kind of amazing in retrospect the amount of denial there was on all this. So it, it's very possible that by the time people listen to this, it will have been the moderates who blew this up. It, in the past, it was the progressives, but the moderates who blow this up because they want a, a CBO score, which which is not inherently an, an, an unreasonable thing to ask for. No, but I'll, I'll step back and make a prediction, which unfortunately I could be, of course, <laughs> totally falsified, and so we can play it three months from now and say how foolish mm-hmm. I am. This thing, something will whatever gets passed by Thanksgiving or not, or by Christmas or not, it's going to, whatever passes, passes, whatever doesn't pass, pass. But let's just assume it did, let's assume for some version of the physical infrastructure bill passes, the bipartisan one, uh, was bipartisan in the Senate, and some version of building back better yeah. passes. I People are going to pass, signing ceremony, Democratic hoopla, Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, this is it, finally. And now people can really be happy about things. They're going to look up two weeks afterwards, Biden's numbers will not have moved one point in the polls. Democratic numbers will not have moved in Senate races, I'm exaggerating, one point, three points. They will not have moved three points in the polls. Democratic numbers in Senate races will not have moved three points in the polls. And unless the Democrats have a broader message that is in touch with more of the public and do a better job of discrediting Republicans, and here they're going to be lucky because it doesn't look like there are many Glenn Youngkins running in uh, Georgia and Ohio and Pennsylvania Senate races. It looks like there are a lot of much kookier Trumpists running. But unless they really bring that home to the voters too, I think 2022 will be pretty grim. So the idea that this legislative package is a solution for 2022, I think is it will help, but it is fundamentally mistaken, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it might change the atmospherics about whether you're succeeding in delivering, but I, I think you're you're right. I mean, a lot of things have to happen. I mean, the coronavirus needs to go away. The economy needs to stay strong. Um, inflation needs to uh, get under control. And, and then Democrats are going to start to have to sound, I, I think, different than what they have sounded over the last uh, several months. And, you know, part of that will be to bring back, uh, bring the Republicans back into center stage. You you just mentioned some of those Senate races. We have a great piece by Amanda Carpenter, which I think is, it, it's, it, it's, it's easy to overlook how bizarre our politics is right now. Yeah. But, yes. but she highlights the fact that Three in three states, the or a leading Republican candidate for the United States Senate has been credibly accused of serious, uh, serious abuse issues, abusing women. Uh, you have Eric Greitens, 
in Missouri who tied a woman up and photographed her. I was forced to resign as governor. Herschel Walker in Georgia uh, has a long track record of threatening um, and terrifying women, which he is he's, he's admitted to. Uh, you have the story of Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania, whose ex-wife is accusing him of choking her and uh, you know really terrifying her and her and her children. And these are all Trump endorsed. I don't know about the Greitens, but I mean the, the, these are the candidates that uh, Republicans might go into twenty twenty two behind. In a normal political environment, they would have been disqualified. They would have been pariahs a long time ago. And yet they they are now going to be the face of the Republican Party nationally. And uh, Democrats ought to get into a different line of work if they're not able to make that a major issue. Yeah, no, well said. And I would say Republican, decent Republicans ought to get into a different line of work if they're not willing to take these people on. And so this is what I, I've been said so many conversations, of course, in the last 48 hours from, uh, you know, decent Republican-ish friends here in Virginia who supported Youngkin and said, look, see, Bill, you, uh, you, McAuliffe was the one who was more out of touch and Youngkin's going to be fine. And the transition has been very polite. I think the Democrats deserve some credit for that. Incidentally, they've been there's been zero talk about in these very, very close races at the state legislative level about anything being overturned or challenged. Anyway, so we've had a very courteous, old-fashioned transition so far with Governor Northam and Governor-elect Youngkin and McAuliffe being gracious and so forth. So that's so maybe things will be better in Virginia. Maybe I exaggerated how Trumpy, uh, how much how compromised Youngkin was right by Trump. I don't think I did, but whatever. And maybe my bet on the moderate Democrats will end up not. Uh, there being a chance to do that, uh, to, to really f promote that side of the Democratic Party won't pay off. But my response to my friends who are more optimistic than I am about the Republican Party, more willing to kind of hope we get beyond Trump, is they have to do something. So anyone who's listening to this podcast who's a Republican donor or, or wants to be sort of on board with Republicans, are they recruiting a Youngkin-type candidate in Georgia against Herschel Walker and offering mm -hmm. to fund that person? Are they recruiting a Youngkin-type candidate for the Senate race in Ohio, for the Senate race in Pennsylvania, for the Senate race in Missouri? Sitting around hoping that Youngkinism is the future of the Republican Party when all these other people are on the ballot and when Trump is riding high, are they willing to say we need to oppose Trump in 2024 and not just kind of hope he goes away? That's the challenge, I think, for our more... Republican tolerant and Republican adjacent friends. And look, I, if Yunkin's a good governor, that'd be great. And if the party goes in a Yunkin direction, that would be healthy for the country. But I, I, I'm, what I'm struck by, I've been complaining about the Democrats here on this podcast, and there's a certain passivity among them, including the moderates. They should be stepping up more and, and reshaping the message. Where is Arnie Duncan? Where is Barack Obama? Where is Bill Clinton? You know, where the Bill Clinton was in the hospital, but you know, where where is all the people who know how to do things a little bit differently? But on the Republican side, I would say the same. Being happy that Youngkin won and hoping that that Youngkin is the future is not a strategy. So, can we end on a slightly different note, please? Okay, I I wanted to mention that you know we have talked in the past on some of these podcasts about some of the great uh, uh, British police shows that uh, that you have recommended yeah, well, you've I, recommended I, I, I too went. yeah um have you you haven't watched line of duty yet have you no I, that's one of you it's on my you list you, you gotta tell me i'm telling you that okay it's it's fantastic but i have to say that you mentioned one i think a couple of weeks ago i forgot to mention last time we, we spoke that turned out to be way 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 better than i was expecting uh unforgotten yeah isn't that good 
Yeah. It is really good. In fact, it, it ranks right up there. I, it's, it's one of those shows where um, when I'm done with it, I, I mean, when I turn it off, I think about it and I go, you know, that's even better than I thought it was. Hmm. Um, very, I mean, we've gone through a lot of, you know, Hinterland, Broadchurch, right. um, Shetland, uh, Line of Duty. Um, this is a, one, certainly one of the very, very best. And unfortunately, I'm almost at the end. No spoiler alerts, please. Do okay. not. Uh, do nothing um but 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 thank you for for that recommendation because that was absolutely fantastic okay well, i will watch line of duty i'm glad that you've enjoyed um unforgotten and uh, yeah it's gripping and um you got something new got something for me no yeah. i'm sort of a little bit i'm a little uh i don't know i've been busy you know uh trying to save i don't know democracy in america the last month or two and so i haven't watched as much of the british tv shows as i as i did there for at the height of the pandemic also i'm out and about i was in chicago you've been out and about a little more than i but i, I was in chicago earlier this week gave a talk I was, david axelrod and i did a panel one of those things on a stage live with people in the audience and then who came up and talked to you afterwards and chatted and took, is that amazing isn't that and you know i'd sort of mocked that during the pandemic not mocked it but sort of like you know what sort of a relief to sit here and uh, look at be at home and just do it on zoom and you know it's not that different and it, why would why did i used to go to the trouble of flying places to do a hour long event but now i'm I've, I've i that was foolish i now think it is fun i mean i wouldn't do it as much as i used to do it but and there's some of this flying around was a little crazy but but uh, there is something about being somewhere in person. And then, of course, you have dinner with friends afterwards, and you do feel like you just learn more and get more in touch. And actually, part of the discussion today, not to exaggerate this, but was with people who were a little more Republican uh, acquiescent than I am these days, and who were sort of ma making the point about some of the points that we've made on this podcast, actually, about uh, the Democrats. You know, it's good to hear people say in their own words for themselves why they just couldn't quite get to being, you know, okay with the Democrats. And these are people who are decent people and who are anti-Trump and who voted for Biden in 2020. So, you know, I think it was personally helpful for me to get out and about a little bit more. So. No, I, I, I would like to do that. But I, again, it's, you start to think and you just had the booster, right, Charlie? So you're, I, you're, I just, you're I just had the booster. So I feel like I can go just about anywhere in the world. So uh, as we go into the weekend, unclear about the fate of infrastructure, I just wanted to leave you with one last thing, Bill, my little gift to you, the new ABBA. See? <laughs> Sounds better than I expected, Charlie, you know? I, <laughs> I knew you'd think so. After 39 years, old guys, girls, they still got it. They still got it, you know. You know, that's the last song on the last album, so that they will that they will ever make. Anyway, have a great weekend, Bill. We'll talk next week. I'm gonna go listen to Abba, I guess, and that will be that will be a new experience for me. So thank you for, for introducing me to that too, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark Podcast today. We'll be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again.